everyone. This is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families and raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back. Stormy, I was unprepared this week with a joke. I'm a little bit behind. Oh, no problem, because I got your back. Oh, what you got? Ah. So, what do you call an owl that does magic tricks? (laughs) I don't know. Not a labracadabrador. It isn't. I thought this would be a good theme. What? Houdini. (laughs) That's great. Uh, I figure we'll stay in the same county. We'll do the same theme for our jokes. I know. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like, hmm. What else can we spin off that magic joke? I know. Everybody else might not be so excited about that. Well, last week we discussed the disappearance of Tracy Kegley from Elmore County. And as I just hinted at, originally we planned to cover two cases in that episode. But after exploring Tracy's story, we knew it deserved our full attention. So we're back again, still in Elmore County, Alabama, to explore another gripping case. In this episode, we'll be diving into the enigmatic case of George Eric James, a Millbrook resident whose story will leave you wondering what really happened. So sit back and get ready to delve into this intriguing mystery with us. So we mentioned last week that Elmore County has a population in the area of 89,000 people, depending on where you look. Compared to Tracy's town of Wetumpka, which we shared was the Elmore County seat and has a population of about 7,200, Millbrook's population is approaching 16,000, and it is the largest city in the county. Oddly, though, Millbrook is a suburb just north and slightly west of Montgomery, though they're in separate counties. A super fun fact about Millbrook is that we just found out that Tim Burton's movie Big Fish was filmed there. We found an excerpt from AL.com about it. Spectra, Alabama is a fictional town built as a set for the 2003 movie Big Fish. When filming was completed, the owners of the property on Jackson Lake Island near Millbrook told director Tim Burton to leave the sets rather than bulldoze them. Apparently, the buildings weren't built to code and there was a fire that destroyed much of the set. And years later, only a few of those buildings still remain. They do still have many tourists and photographers that come to see it. You can camp there and fish. And I also saw that there is a small herd of wild goats that wander through there. I would just love to go there now. I just like if if we get a chance to like hook up. Yes. Sellers, I'm going to visit Big Fish Lake. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think my husband will want to go with me because we both love that I movie. That'd be a really fun trip. 
I do, too. Well, a quick note before we get into George's case. Though we share our sources in the episode details, and we did research quite a bit of publicly available information, I wanted to give an extra shout out to Marissa Jones with The Vanish Podcast for great in-depth research into um, George's case. She was able to do a really tasteful interview with George's mother and one of her daughter-in-laws really gave a great perspective from the family side. And just on a whole, Marissa is such a fantastic and ethical content creator. It's very evident that she cares immensely for each victim and their families. So I would really um, tell you to please check out her show. And we'll have the link for George's episode in our description. I love The Vanished. She puts a lot of time into her cases. And I think she does a great job. She does. I think sometimes it is so heart-wrenching to hear the emotions come through right. from families. Yeah. George James grew up in a difficult family situation with his mother, Tillis, and four brothers. Tillis endured an abusive marriage with George's and his two younger brothers' father before finally leaving and taking her five sons with her. And George was about nine at that time. They lived on next to nothing and were homeless much of that time. However, a couple years later, Tillis met and married John James, uh, who seemed to be a really great guy, and who adopted the three youngest boys and gave them his last name. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's really great. I like to hear about families that when they blend together, they blend well, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, As a side note, the two older brothers, um, they were from a previous marriage that um, Tillis had, and he unfortunately had passed away. Um, So they wanted to keep his name, which is why John didn't adopt them um, specifically and give them his name. So you can imagine that such a rough start to their family life probably caused some typical issues with the boys. And it did indeed, and they would get into a lot of trouble. Even his mother stated that she struggled with her bitterness after what she had gone through with her prior marriage and, you know, all the aftermath of that. Though she was always loving and cared for her boys, she wasn't always the most pleasant mom. And she pretty much has said that in a couple of different places. So I'm not trying to be mean by saying that. She most admittedly said that. I think there's something to be said about somebody who can see what's going on and accept that maybe they played a part in things that were going on. You know, I always preached our kids about accountability. Yeah, That's a, a, a hard thing to recognize. So it is. It for, certainly that's is. That's impressive. And it says a lot about her character. Yeah. And she actually is just a lovely woman. I mean, from the interviews I've seen now, you know, I think she overcame a lot of that bitterness. And I think maybe some of it had to do with all that she had to go through once, you know, the things happened with George. So, you know, she's very determined too, mm-hmm. based on some of those. Very much things. so. You know, she seems like somebody who can stand strong in the face of adversity. Absolutely. Well, in the midst of all the trouble, George befriended someone named Ian in his early days. And after a short time, they became involved in gang activity. Oh. Unfortunately, in a lot of, I won't say broken homes, but Homes with those kinds of um, backgrounds, that does happen quite a bit. Uh, 
George and Ian managed to get themselves again into quite a bit of trouble. In early 1995, at just 18 years old, George was arrested in an incident for discharging a gun. There wasn't a lot of detail about that, but I imagine if he's an 18-year-old with a gun, and I think it may have said something about um, discharging into a building, so maybe he endangered somebody. But later in that same year, in December, they actually both ended up in prison, him and Ian both, on a burglary charge in relation to a shotgun. So kind of a gun theme here, but I guess that's not uncommon with gang activity. Yeah. I wonder if the gun was the same one that he discharged. I don't know. It was really kind of hard to tell from what I was reading about the gun itself and what I read from the court transcripts about um, his hearings. It sounded like the the shotgun was in the back of a car he was driving and whether that was what was in the burglary or not at the time, which I'll get into a little bit more, um, or whether the gun was given to him or whether it just happened to be in the trunk. We, I, it was kind of unclear yeah, whether it's the same gun or not. It's hard to say. I did read in one of those transcripts that it, he acknowledged he knew the gun was in the trunk of the car. Exactly. Yeah. There is a bit more to this story than that, though. Because of their gang affiliation, it seems that the accepted code among gang members, and mind you, I don't know anything about gangs, but this is kind of what I read. If one of the members that of the gang that got arrested is with, you know, they're with another person, if the second person is at a lower standing in the gang, they're supposed to take responsibility for all the charges. Um, and I think I've heard that before. Kind of like, let the low man take the fall. Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. And so, you know, when they went to court, George's mom was there. And it kind of rings true of what we've read about her um, personality so far and her fortitude. She very sternly encouraged him only to plead guilty to what he actually did during this. And after that happened, and he did only plead guilty to what he did, according to the reports, Ian was not happy at all about this and basically threatened him with revenge. Mm. Uh, Solid advice from his mom. That's, That's terrible. That's hard. And I don't know what she feels about that now. And that was probably... I didn't really see anything about it at all. It just, But I just know, you know, as a mom, you you think about those things after the fact. And that was know? probably a hard decision for him, too, because he had to have in his mind that there might be some kind of retaliation for not following along yeah, with I'm whatever sure. the code was. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, as we kind of go along the story, you'll kind of get the impression that maybe George really didn't have his heart in this whole thing with the gangs. I don't know. It's hard to say at that point what his frame of mind would have been, but I think he was already, in his brain, he was already learning lessons from what he has gone through. One intriguing aspect worth noting in George's case is related to the charges brought against him. After examining his court documents, I discovered that among the charges to which George pled guilty was receiving a stolen firearm, specifically a short-barreled shotgun. It's worth noting that he was sentenced to a seven-year prison term that commenced on April of 1996. 
In November of 1996, the state then attempted to put him on trial again for possession of the same firearm that he had already pled guilty to receiving earlier that year. Yeah, I was, I mean, that's semantics to me. How do you receive without possessing? How do you plead guilty to receiving it and Exactly. Like, obviously, it was in his position. Yep. And he acknowledged that it was in his position. Right. Yeah. Well, George and his lawyer felt that, too. They argued that the charge should be dismissed because he was already in possession of the firearm. But unfortunately, the judge didn't agree. And as a result, George was handed another seven-year prison sentence that ran concurrently with his original seven-year sentence, ultimately resulting in no additional time served. But additional charges on his record. So it's really unclear if those additional charges may have affected his chances of parole, um, but they certainly added another layer of complexity to this really intricate case already. And we don't always get lucky enough to actually have court transcripts of the proceedings. But this is one of those instances where when we were looking through these court records, there was a court transcript. Exactly. Yeah. I was pretty amazed. I, I was too. And you see the arguments that his lawyer is making. And even he even gave testimony on his own behalf. Um, yep. Yep. We talked about this that there's one section in particular where the judge asks him, explain, explain what happened. Tell me the facts of what you did. And so. Mm-hmm. George goes through what happened and that they found a shotgun in the trunk of the car. And they've been arguing this entire time about how this possession charge is essentially double jeopardy on the previous charge. And they ask him, is anybody threatening you or forcing you, promising you anything to get you to say that you're guilty? No. Okay. Are you guilty? I guess I'm guilty. It's like, he knew it wasn't getting anywhere. Yeah. I mean, that's defeat right there. And you know how many wrongful convictions are brought about by that? I mean, there's so many times where people say they're guilty because they feel they have no other option. They're just going to do it anyway, so they might as well just say I'm guilty. It's, I mean, it's so sad. Uh, one of my, one of my side things is wrongful convic- convictions, and I it just... To no end, it bothers me when you hear things like this, especially from young, young people, which is often the case. And here's something that we would probably need a little bit more context, but I was just scrolling through this while we're talking, and it just hit me. As the judge is talking to George, and he's telling him, George is relaying what happened. He tells them they found the shotgun in the trunk of my car. The judge asked, who is they? The police. It had a short barrel on it. They towed me for receiving the shotgun. Now I'm charged with possession of a shotgun. The judge says, you knew the shotgun was there. Yeah, you had possession of the shotgun. I mean, it was in the trunk of your car. He said it was in the trunk of the car I was in. Did you put it there? Did you know it was there? He said, I knew it was there. He did not say he put that gun in the trunk of his car. He did not. He said he knew it was there. Yep. And 
it, he even said of the car I was driving, like it was not necessarily his car either. Well, he so did say kind of wonder they found the shotgun in the trunk of my car. Mm, yeah, okay. he did um, kind of elaborate on that at the very beginning when he's telling the facts. So let's just read through this for a minute, through this transcript. After the judge goes through talking to George about his rights and the right to appeal, he says, okay, tell me the facts of it. Tell me what you did. There was a short-barreled shotgun. The shotgun was in the trunk of the car I was in. They found the shotgun in the trunk. I'm sorry. Say that again. They found the shotgun in the trunk of my car. Who was they? The police. And it had a short barrel on it. They towed me for receiving the shotgun. Now I'm charged with possession of the shotgun. You knew the shotgun was there? Yeah. You had possession of the shotgun? I mean, it was in the trunk of your car? It was in the trunk of the car I was in. Did you put it there? Did you know it was there? I knew it was there. So, he never admits to putting the gun there. He never does. And that bugs me. Yep. And I'm still not 100% clear whether it really was his car or if it really was just a car he was driving. Because he does say my car at the beginning, but he kind of backs off that and just says he does. the car I was in. Yep. And I kind of wonder, since we knew that all of this took place with Ian, if maybe it was Ian's car. And they don't really mention any, like, co-defendants, so they must have handled the charges separately, I'm assuming. And it may look like it's not a big deal because the sentence ran concurrently, so he didn't get any additional time. But it is a big deal. Very much is a big deal. Um, Just like you said, it added another charge to his record. And for somebody who is 18 years old, trying to go into their adult life and get jobs and all of these things, because he'd also applied for youthful offender status, which meant these charges would be sealed and they wouldn't be able to be used against him, you know, on job applications mm -hmm. and things. That was denied. Why? Yeah, and I think that I think that probably had to do with the fact that he, I think he had a previous charge that was well. They, well, they asked, did he have a? I think it's at the beginning of that transcript. They asked, did he have any prior convictions or anything? And his lawyer says no. It might be because it was under youthful. I don't know how that affects the other charge. I mean, I don't know if you if it's sealed, then can they use that? My understanding is, I mean, they might could. When making the determination on whether or not to actually continue or grant it. But mm -hmm. I don't think that just having one disqualifies you from ever pleading youthful offender again. No, but it didn't sound like the the judge was very sympathetic. No, and it kind of makes you wonder if it was because of his affiliation with the gang. I'm pretty sure that that had some influence over some of this, at least. And they don't discuss that. In the transcript anywhere? I don't see it mentioned anywhere. Um, My guess is that... like that had to be known. If he's been in... Yeah, if he's been in the system at all before, at least some of the people, if not the judge, knew in that courtroom. He had tattoos, so it's very possible he may have even just known from that or assumed from that. And they don't mention another party, but you would also assume they probably did know that there was somebody else arrested in conjunction with these charges. I would bet that they probably do. I assume he was arrested. It's not mentioned in here, but 
No, but I think in the, all the um, information that I read, they were both charged. Yeah. Which is not shown here. I think they obviously they just must have kept it separate. Well, George did try to appeal. Um, because he was indigent, he actually represented himself quite a bit. And I have to say, I was very impressed with his motions and efforts in the court. It was just pretty dang impressive for 18-year-old. And yes, because he spent a lot of time, it looks like, researching. And it, they're very well formatted. That's one thing that I notice a mm-hmm. lot from working as a paralegal before is formatting and it drives me crazy. And I, he had his tables set up or, you know, however we used to use tables, but um, it had really good formatting and he had good language in it. And it was really yeah. impressive. I'm with you on that. I was, he was obviously a very smart young man. Yeah. I Even agree. if smart, it, being smart doesn't always mean you make the best decisions. But he was that's true. Obviously yeah. smart enough to comprehend what he was saying and communicate that well. Well, unfortunately, his efforts seemed to fall on deaf ears and that it didn't help at all. In March of 1998, after actually obtaining another court-appointed attorney, and after three months of motions and hearings, George actually was released from prison. Oh, so he did get out before the seven years? He did. And unfortunately, it was all at more cost than just time and fees. It nearly cost him his life. Not long before his release, he was very brutally attacked by several people, and he landed in the infirmary for quite a while just before he was let out. Oh. Yeah. We can't say for sure. We don't have anything to say who it was that you know, that did this, who took part in it. Um, So we don't know if it's retribution from Ian as he kind of threatened before he went in or if it was by the gang or a gang in the prison, maybe. But we don't really know the reason for it, but we can kind of guess it might have had something to do with Ian. So here is a clip with Tillis from a May 2022 interview with Jasmine Williams of WSFA. He was jumped by a myriad of people. He, he was beaten badly, and some other things were done to him. He said, Mom, I'm going to heal. I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to get out. I've gotten out. When George got out of prison, he was determined to turn his life around. He got a job in construction and was living with his parents. But even though he was trying to put his gang life behind him, they weren't having any of it. They were going by his parents' house. They were calling them or calling the house. George then decided to move in with a friend so he could sort of protect his family. I kind of wondered if that would have happened, you know, when I first started reading about this. It's not easy to get away from gang life. No. Um, Sometimes you just can't. It's one of those things where sometimes you just know too much about things that are going on, and sometimes they just don't want to let you go from what it sounds like. Yeah. On November 23rd, 1998, it was just a couple days before Thanksgiving, and George's mother, Tillis, was taking care of tasks and preparing foods, such as, you know, people do just before the holidays. 
Georgia come by the house to help her out. He seemed a little bit out of sorts, but nothing really too especially noticeable about it. However, out of nowhere, he started just a really odd conversation. And at first it was just sort of passive and just kind of piqued her attention. But quickly the conversation became almost argumentative. Per his mother, as told by episode 354 of The Vanished, he tells her, So mom, you only have four boys. And he repeatedly starts saying the same thing in more or less the same exact same thing over and over. And she kept countering him in between thinking it was some sort of strange game at first. But finally, she just went along with it and trying to figure out what he was getting at. Well, he told her not to count on him anymore once she agreed and that he wouldn't see her anymore. He had gathered all of the possessions he still kept there and stormed out, leaving his mother stunned. She followed him out the door, trying to persuade him to stay and talk to her, but she fell. He turned to look and make sure she was okay, and she kind of mentions that um, she kind of he kind of had this look on his face, almost as if to say, I'm very sorry, but then he turned and left. That's, I don't even know what to say about it. I know. And I mean, knowing that he was going to move out to try to protect his family, and then you've got him making these comments. You know, one of the things that we discussed was, is he in witness protection somewhere? Because right. it almost yep. seems like what he really needed his mom to commit to was that she only had four sons and he needed her to Mm -hmm. commit to that because he didn't want anything coming back on her. Yeah. And that is just, and I think sad that you don't feel like you have any other option. Right. Whether it was something like witness protection or whether it was just simply just leaving, you know, cutting ties, so to say, just, just for protection, as you were saying, you know, sometimes people, when they, are doing something like that, it's easier if you leave on bad terms because you think, well, then they're remembering me fondly. They're remembering me from an argument. And it's easier to handle that idea that, you know, you parted badly rather than with loving goodbyes. And listening to his mom recount that just absolutely shattered my heart. I cried listening to it. I, I actually did, too. Uh, Yeah, it was heartbreaking. His family actually never saw him again after this. They looked for him everywhere. When he didn't show up for Thanksgiving a couple days later, Tillis continued to look for him that day everywhere she could think of, then filed a missing person report on the day after Thanksgiving on the 27th. Tillis checked in with the police a few days after filing the report. They said they'd get back to her, but when she didn't hear anything for another couple of days, she went right down to the station to ask them in person. And they told her they didn't have a report and that she had to refile it again. Holy. No one was looking but his family for that full week. Oh, my word. And, you know, sadly, we'll talk about some of the rumors that took place later, but some of them actually placed him not that far away within just a couple of days after he So left. she... Went and filed a missing person report and then mm. then was told that the report she actually filed 
was nowhere to be found and it needed to be redone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Chaps my high. Yes. So to say, it really made me mad. So Sellers and I had chatted a little bit and we were, I was trying to find something that would tell me a little bit more, but we couldn't figure out why his case was actually in Montgomery instead of Elmore County. And I, you know, I keep thinking, well, you know, Millbrook's in Elmore. Why would they not be handling the case? You know, it just racked my brain for a while. And then all of a sudden it just dawned on me is that she went down and filed the missing person report and she went to Montgomery Police Department to do that. You know, and they're so close in proximity as far as being a suburb of Montgomery. So didn't his friend that he was going to live with, didn't he live in Montgomery? I believe so. I was going to go back and look at that and I actually forgot to go back. But I think that it was. I think he did actually move in with him before he disappeared. So he was there for a short time. So maybe she just thought that's where he was headed back to whenever he left. It could be. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, not living in that area, it could be that that's just naturally where people go, you know, if they're in the small suburb outside of Montgomery. That may be where people go. I don't know. There were rumors of where he may have been seen after he left, but the last confirmed sighting was a store clerk who saw George make a call at a public payphone. Some other witnesses said they saw him in a restaurant with a woman named Robin that he had been seeing. And with them was Ian. And they said that took place in a restaurant in Montgomery. He had a car full of possessions, apparently, outside planning to go to Florida or Mobile, which were both places where he'd done some construction work. It seemed like a plausible sighting. We don't know for sure who the witness was. It was supposed to be a waitress that was there. They don't really name her. And I don't know if they name her, you know, down the road, they may have actually interviewed her more, but it wasn't really stated anywhere that they talked to her again. And I'm assuming in 1998, there probably wasn't just surveillance video in random places, especially considering the fact that there were payphones still available. Right. Yep. Some also say that he had been run over or shot in the head and taken out by his former gang. and. Just on and on, those kinds of horrible kinds of rumors came up. But apart from what we already know, it appears that George was involved in a romantic relationship with a married woman. According to her, he showed up at her doorstep one day in need of leaving town urgently. The woman, whose husband was deeply involved in drug dealing and bookmaking, so he was a bookie, grabbed a large sum of money from the drawer and gave it to George. They called it a wad of cash in some places. So I'm thinking, you know, one of those rolls that you see in the movies. (laughs) That's where a lot of our experience and knowledge comes from watching TV. Isn't that terrible? But yeah, yeah. But she gave it to him and then urged him to flee and stay safe. That is troublesome in and of itself. Mm -hmm. There was somewhere I read, and I don't remember exactly which. Um, when it was, and I couldn't find it when I went back to look um, for it. It was something to do with um, her actually telling her husband at some point that he stole the money. Oh, even worse. And it, yeah, which would be worse. But then later on, she confesses that, you know, what really happened. 
So that's kind of how they know this, I think. Um, how much of the other part of it, you know, is true since I can't reference the article again right away. Um, you know, I don't know if that was exactly the way the story went, but for sure, um, you know, she did talk with Tillis afterwards and kind of recount what happened. I'm glad that she came forward and did give his mom some of that information, but it doesn't help a lot on the credibility if you're not sure which part of the information is actually true. Exactly, yeah. About four months after his disappearance, George's abandoned car was located with a blown motor on Interstate 65 near Evergreen, Alabama, in Conecuh County. This is really close to where he had been seen making a phone call earlier that we mentioned. The car was towed, and the family assumed that it went to the Montgomery Police for processing. But later, a class at Auburn University working on cold cases happened to be working on this case and revealed that the car was actually never searched, but rather it was taken somewhere to be crushed and disposed of. You've got to be kidding me. Nope. So it was never processed. Somebody towed it, and I don't know if it went straight to this place or if it was stored for a while and then they got rid of it by accident or on purpose. So nobody knows if it actually went to the police department at all? They know it was never searched. There's no record of it being searched at all. But they don't know where, since they know that it was taken somewhere and crushed, to be taken somewhere to be crushed and disposed of, where was it taken? Was it Mm -hmm. taken to Montgomery Police or was it taken to some other yard? No, I'm thinking it was taken to a yard. However, I couldn't look at any um, actual records of what the class, you know, the the findings of the class. Um, this all came from uh, from the story that uh, Tellus recounted. That is insane. Um, yeah. So, you know, I absolutely don't have the actual um, paperwork to confirm it, but I would say it's a pretty plausible thing. Um, she even gave the name of the instructor of the class that led led the, their investigation of it. So I'm assuming that they've somehow had some sort of paper trail, but they didn't have any record of anything being searched as far as the car goes. That's just mind-blowing. Right. There's a lot of things in this case that I just, it kind of stuns you a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you would think it at least went to the yard and they did a cursory look at it. I don't know. His family actually has many frustrations with how this investigation has been handled. The case has had multiple lead detectives assigned, and it seems that some would put it in, you know, put in a lot of work and then all of a sudden would get transferred or demoted when any progress was made. This all could be coincidence, but, you know. That means that every time a new investigator got on the case, they essentially had to start over because they had to start reviewing the case to get up to speed on it. And so no one ever really had it for enough time to be able to do anything with it. That's exactly right. Tillis tells Marissa in The Vanish about a particular officer that would blatantly stymie any leads or searches that occurred when he was handling the case. He actually showed up at a search one time that he was not even notified of. It was done through Elmar County Sheriff's Office, and apparently he caused some issues with it. Basically was wondering what was going on with the search, 
And there was, um, I think it had needed to be continued to the next day. And basically he told them that he would take care of that. And when they came back the next day to partake in the search, he told them that it was already done. So whether that's the case or not, I am not sure that I would believe that. And I don't think they did either. How did he even find out about well, it? Well, that's that's coming up. He's seems that he actually lived up on a hillside that overlooked the area that they were searching at that particular search. Um, He also, apparently, one of the officers there seemed to know that he also apparently monitored the Elmore Sheriff's Office activity. And so he just knew they would be there. Just amazing to me. That is sketchy. Yeah. At minimum, it's sketchy. I mean, it could just be just a control kind of a guy, you know, that just, since it was, I guess, assigned to him that he just, that was the way And you want to know but, the investigators are paying attention like this, that there are, that they do know what's going on in the case. Mm-hmm. But when you have somebody that you think is intentionally misleading or misdirecting. This is just kind of one of many things. Um, I think in that same discussion on the vanish i believe she mentions that tillis actually talked directly to the police officer kind of asking him why he was there and kind of had a little one-on-one face-off so to say i guess about it he just kind of snubbed her off so she also tillis had at one time received a tip from someone saying that they know that a friend's wife was having an affair and that he killed george For three months, he was actually available to be interviewed, this witness, as he was homesick. Um, And I think during part of that time, he actually became arrested, so he was in prison. Um, But this whole time, they claimed that they never could find the witness. But he was at home. To talk to. He was at home and in prison, like there where they could just walk over to the prison. And and somebody knew that. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. (sighs) She actually even drove another witness to the police station when she checked back about it all. Apparently, they were some, I guess, illegally in the United States. I don't know if she knew that or not. But And when she checked back, she found out they were deported about two weeks after she had dropped them off at the police station. And MPD just claimed that they weren't able to locate them, so they never interviewed them. What, they didn't interview them before they deported them? Nope. Nope. So I don't know what happened at that time. I don't know if they really did talk to him and didn't, you know. Sometimes you find out that they do like a verbal interview and then send people off and then maybe they'll come back and do a formal interview, but they didn't or I don't know. But they never did question them or at least not on record. After all of this also, a few years ago, Tillis did try to approach the Montgomery City Council to try to put some pressure on the uh, Montgomery Police Department or try to find some other options to bring their case forward a bit more and, you know, try to get Montgomery Police to do something, which actually did work for a little while. So, you know, people started paying attention. There was a lot of pressure on the police department at that point. I'm not sure if any real progress was made, but it made the family at least feel like somebody was looking at the case. And the Montgomery Advertiser did feature 
um, George in a lot of their missing person updates that they did that we talked about in the previous episode with Tracy, mm-hmm. where they ran those yeah, articles. Yeah. And he was mentioned frequently in those articles. Yeah. Um, in fact, even just a couple, I want to say a couple of years ago, maybe even last year, they actually had a, quite a big push in the media for um, not just George, but other others as well. So I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other whether there is any law enforcement involvement with George's case. You know, it could be that George's case just didn't take priority due to his history, as we kind of talked about earlier. Um, it could all, all these things could be coincidence, though I have a hard time believing there's that many coincidences in one case. And but, part of it probably had to do know, with I, what we talked about just a few minutes ago, that there were so many people changing hands and mm-hmm. or or that his file was changing hands so frequently that nobody had time to actually dig in and review the case. And it makes you wonder, too, how many tips came in that fell through the cracks because his case was kind of being shuffled around. Not saying that there were, but that's a possibility. I'm going to play next uh, another short clip from Tell Us that kind of ties in with all of that. He was a thug. He was a troublemaker. That's how they looked at him, and I've heard it said before. Do you give up? If he's been in trouble, was he worth finding? Yes, he's your child. You don't care what he's done. Tillis did actually have some renewed hope as of last year. George's case was assigned to a Sergeant Garner Clark, who seemed to really want to solve the case. And I had actually left a message for Sergeant Clark before I actually realized who you know, she was talking about um, before I'd read anything about that. So I'm hoping that this um, officer will call us back and maybe we can get an update on the case. So if we do, of course, we'll do an update on that. That would be great. There are a couple. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? And And I'm glad to hear that because, you know, when you make these phone calls, sometimes you think, well, I probably won't hear back from them, but Mm -hmm. I made the call, right? Yep. But I don't, not saying that I know I'm going to hear the call back, but at least I know I was calling somebody who they feel like is doing something about their case. So I did want to share a couple of bright stories in all of this worry and sadness. Tillis had tried to go back to work in 1999 for a short time, just as a part-time job to, you know, kind of have a distraction from everything. Um, So she went to work at Cracker Barrel. She was let go oh. because she knew she wasn't doing a good job. No, she she knew it. She was just struggling with the job. Um, it wasn't something that she had ever done before. And she realized it very shortly, like just within a couple of days, I think, that <laughs> so she wasn't, wasn't going to be able to. too upset about it, I guess. She wasn't, no. So, you know, she was a little down beca- because she, she needed the distraction. But, yeah, not too not too upset. She went and sat in the break room after talking with her boss and a younger woman was back there and kind of started chatting with her and kind of encouraging her, you know, that it was okay, that, you know, it just wasn't her thing and that sort of thing. In their conversation, she actually showed Tillis a picture of her three-year-old son. He was the spitting image of George at that age, three years old. Tillis was taken aback by that. 
I mean, I think I would be too if I was sitting there staring at a picture of my three-year-old yeah. son. Even if, that, you know. With somebody that I didn't know. Exactly. Like out of the blue, it's the first time we ever seen this woman. She questioned why would she have that picture that was her son? And the woman was startled and said, no, it was her son and asked who Telus' son was. After saying George's name, also in a little bit of a shock then, the woman tells Tillis that George is actually the father of her son, Derek. Holy crap. Yeah. This is like a random, she went to work at Cracker Bell. This woman also happened to work at Cracker Bell. They met in the, the you know, the break room the last day that she would ever been at the break room and just happens to meet the mother of her grandson. You talk about it being a small world. <laughs> uh-huh. It was just, just crazy. I mean, what are the odds? So, of course, they went on to become very close-knit. Um, eventually, they also learned that Derek's stepdad was also a friend of George's for about 15 years before he disappeared. So the whole family just kind of got to know each other very well after all of this. And, you know, he said lots of good things about George, which is, you know, nice to hear. He had other friends that weren't involved in the things that he was involved in. But that's not all. In late 2012, on a Facebook page the family made for George, so it's kind of interesting because it's like a personal Facebook page. His mom actually sometimes writes as on the Facebook page as if it's him speaking. I kind of like it. Which is really cool. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it's, if it's speaking to anybody who might have any connection, you know, whatsoever to the case, it's very stark. I mean, I couldn't imagine being somebody who is involved in something nefarious with somebody and having read that. It reminds that, me like that, of you know. the billboard from Mont Holly. It does. It, oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's like the person's actually talking mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. It happened to be his birthday in October, and a young lady named Destiny, who was about 15 years old, wrote on his page and wished George a happy birthday and then told them that she was his daughter. Wow. Apparently, yeah. Apparently, the woman, Robin, that George was supposedly going to go away with was pregnant, and this was his daughter. George actually has two children who now also, by the way, have children of their own. So George is now a grandpa, and Tillis is a great-grandma. That is... He has two kids that he never even met. I know. It's kind of bittersweet. It is. I mean, that's a it's such a it's such a neat thing for the family to have something to remember them by and to you know that they never expected. I think that is a hundred percent agree. That is kind of a a silver lining, so to speak, for his mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's also just like you said, it is so bittersweet to think about the fact that he had these children that he will never get the chance to know. Yeah, yeah. Tillis did actually reconnect with Robin. She kind of hoped that Robin would give her some answers. However, unfortunately, she really wasn't able to get much information. She used to be what was called a gang mama at the time George disappeared, which 
if I understand right, is and maybe somebody might correct me if I'm not exactly right about the, how to explain this, but basically, somebody in the gang claims this woman, and then they kind of become more or less an unofficial married person, but more like a servant sort of to that person. And I think I've heard also that sometimes they will change hands um, depending on like standing in the gang. I'm not really sure if that part is correct, but that's what I've heard. Um, So I can imagine why she wanted to leave. I was thinking it was more like Gemma from Sons of Anarchy, where she was kind of like, Mama to everybody. Oh, <laughs> no. obviously no, no, no. is not accurate. So, yeah, that's you can kind of understand why she was maybe trying to get away with George. Yep. Unfortunately, as I said, she couldn't give her much information. Um, she would only tell Tillis that she was told never to come back to Alabama and not to open her mouth or the same thing would happen to her that happened to George. <sighs> Tillis believes, obviously, she wouldn't say something like that if she didn't know what happened, I don't think. And another cherry on the top of that is that um, Montgomery police never interviewed Robin hmm. this whole time. Okay, well, Robin, if you're listening, you can submit an anonymous tip online and nobody will ever know that it came from you. You don't have to come back to Alabama. That's exactly right. George's father, John, told WSFA in 2015, we miss him terribly. George's father, John James. We miss his smile and miss his laughter. And then he also says about where George might be, we believe there are people out there who have information on his disappearance, his death, and possibly even where his remains might be. And this is one of the things that Tellus says also is they're to the point now, they would love to have justice, of course, they would love to be able to put a person behind bars. But really, all they wanted to know is where George is. You know, they just want to bring him home at this point. So they really, I mean, an anonymous tip, like you just said, Robin, if you're listening, seriously, an anonymous tip is all they want, just so they can bring him home. And if you need to, you can send it on our website. You don't even have to put your email address on there. Exactly. Yep. And we, again, we sometimes have to say this, but unfortunately, John passed away a couple of years ago, unable to see his son brought home or know what happened. I'm going to share a clip of an interview with John and Monica Kason from the missing persons advocate group called Q. It was one of their roadside rallies in 2017. Right now, I'm looking... Uh, I want to know where to go next, what to do next, where to search next, who to talk to, uh, what could best serve uh, our interest in bringing our son home, uh, whether it be law enforcement or community action. Just uh, very frustrated with law enforcement at this time in the uh, Montgomery area. But I know one thing, we will not give up. And while we encouraged Robin earlier to come forward with information, those same comments go to anybody with information. You can submit your tips anonymously online, which we will 
put links to all of that in the details and it'll be on our webpage. But if you're just completely adverse to contacting the police, fill out a contact form on our page and we'll submit it anonymously for you if we need to. Just get it Absolutely. in. Get the information yeah. in. For this or any case, honestly, I mean, we always would prefer that the law enforcement handle it if it's a tip that's going to lead to, you know, an arrest. But we certainly can be, you know, the vehicle in which that reaches them. So there's so many people that love George. It's so evident from, you know, all the things that we read from his parents and from family and his friend that they found after all this time. He made some poor choices, obviously, but he also made some choices in his life that caused a lot of happiness and love. And that's what he should be remembered for. At the time of his disappearance, 22-year-old George Eric James was around 6 foot 1 and 170 pounds. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and blue eyes. George may use the last name of Conquest or a nickname of Caesar. He has a few tattoos, a lighthouse on his chest, a skull on the right side of his neck, the word brick tattooed on his right arm, and the name Robin tattooed on the underside of his right forearm. If you know anything about George's disappearance or his whereabouts, please contact Sergeant Garner Clark with the Montgomery Police Department at 334-625-2831. And to submit an anonymous tip, you can reach us at our website contact page. All contact information will be in the episode description. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for Podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening. And remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.